There's a sense right now that Indigenous values actually are important, and we need that for the long-term safety and survival of our planet. Like, there is a shift happening. We can't go ahead willy-nilly on this profit above all. Like, there are things that are important. Our non-human relations, our environment, and the big thing through COVID is our social connections to each other. That's Mark Podlasley, the Director of Economic Policy and Initiatives with the First Nations Major Projects Coalition, and he's a proud member of the Inklakapam First Nation in British Columbia. He's our guest on the Akamemuk Podcast. Danse, tuwao, and welcome to the Akamemuk Podcast. I'm your host, Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, and Akamemuk is a Plains Cree word for you all persevere, or in other words, let's keep going and don't give up. So on this podcast, we discuss the leading issues facing First Nations peoples with top experts, with elders, and community leaders. And today, we're talking about a growing trend in the world of business and finance called environmental, social, and governance, or ESG. Basically, it's a way for investors to assess how their investments will help communities and the world around them beyond just the financial impact. So where do First Nations fit into this new style of ethical investing? To find out, we welcome Mark Podlasley. He's a Harvard graduate, and he is the Director of Economic Policy and Initiatives with the First Nations Major Projects Coalition. It's a national collective of over 70 First Nations working to ensure they receive a fair share of benefits from major projects in their territories through equity ownership and revenue sharing. Mark Podlasley... A great big welcome to our Akamema podcast. Well, thank you, National Chief. I'm very happy to be here. And first question, of course, what does this ESG, this environmental social governance, mean to you? And why is it important to First Nations people across Canada? Well, ESG, environmental social governance investment standards, were created by the financial markets to judge, as you point out, how they're doing on the ground, uh, either in, in the areas of environmental, social, and governance. The problem with them, though, is that Indigenous people were not involved in the setting of those standards, the administration of the standards, or the interpretation of them. So as far as we're concerned, as Indigenous people, we actually have no input into how these decisions are made. The challenge really comes, though, is that the financial markets, and these are in the world right now, there's 40 trillion US dollars behind these standards. They're making the decision what's good on the ground in terms of the environment, and the bigger one is what's good for us socially in their investments. So, where do we actually fit in then? Like, if we weren't involved in the development or design of these ESG standards or applicability, like, where do, how do we fit in? And what do, do investors even consider First Nations peoples? Well, investors are supposed to take care or look at the impact of their projects on the communities and in the countries and the regions they're operating. But as I mentioned, the standards themselves were formed, um, international markets decided them. Um, right in the something called the United Nations Principles for Responsible Investment, that's where ESG first showed up in 2006. It says there that these are standards for investors by investors. So the, the ironic part is, is that we, as the hosts of these projects across the world, actually, not just in Canada, Indigenous people, we feel the impacts directly. So the challenge comes now is that these people from outside, usually in New York or London, are deciding what's good on the ground. So Indigenous people, unless we make our interests known to the investors, we, we don't figure into the decisions. And 
for communities right now, this is a problem. A $5 billion pipeline or an oil sands development or a new railway, the decision on the money, because money drives everything, is made without our direct involvement. What needs to change to fix that? Because as you're just t- talking, like I'm getting, wow, we're left out, we're forgotten again. How do we change that? How do we fix that? Well, at the Major Projects Coalition, what we're proposing is there needs to be some sort of Canadian interpretation or filter on these international standards. These standards are international, and there are hundreds of them. There are some larger standards that are in use uh, by, in Canada and other places in the world that do have, um, they, they mention that they're supposed to be uh, taking care or at least considering local impact. But in all of them, the only reference, direct reference to Indigenous peoples is in something called the GRI, Global Reporting Initiative. And it says that we have to go to law, to court, before it becomes seen by the investors. So what we need to do as Indigenous people is somehow get seen by the investment community. Do you have any ideas or thoughts on how we can become seen by the investment community? Well, for projects that are actually uh, in favor or desired by Indigenous people, the easiest way to do that is to take an equity ownership in the project. Because at that point, we are actually seen by the investors because we're another investor. That is not a possibility for all First Nations, but for those who can get into that situation, and it doesn't matter if it's just some shares or a larger percentage ownership, then we're seen. And at that point, we are considered material. And that's the term for being seen, material, by the investors. Okay. Well, that's that's a really good point because that's something that more and more First Nations people are starting to say is that we want to move beyond IBAs, impact benefit agreements, and even resource revenue sharing agreements and look at equity ownership, equity investments, getting more involvement at the board level. What's your take on that? Yes. If the project is in line with the interests of the nation and the community, yes. Having an equity stake in a project, if the project is what the community wants to be involved in, provides a couple of benefits. First off, it gives a seat at the table in decision-making. So impacts environmentally will be uh, up to the shareholders, and we would be then shareholders. The second thing is it provides an own source revenue stream, depending on the project. So if it's an electrical transmission line or green electrical energy, those have regulated returns. So that would mean that the nation knows exactly how much money they're going to get from it every month or every quarter when they pay out. So that provides a number of benefits. The third one is that when you have a seat at the table, you have a seat in the governance of it. So decisions on other investments would also, we would have a say in that as well. That's where everything in ESG runs from. It's written as ESG, but it's really G, S, and E. Governance decides everything. So we must be involved at that level. Good point. Mm-hmm. So it's, again, that, that constant theme about getting more and more First Nations people involved around decision-making tables. So this would be, in this case, it would be the, the boardroom table, you know, the ownership table, you know, you have a stake, right? There's one other thing I want to raise about the governance question. Um, the First Nations Major Project Coalition, we put out a report on this and we had a recent conference on it. We checked out to see how many Indigenous boards of directors, how many directors there are on Canadian boards uh, governing these companies. And of the ones that were reported, there's seven out of 2036, which is 0.4%. Seven First Nations people out of 2,000 individuals. Of individuals, yes. Mm -hmm. Which is astounding for a country this size and how complicated the economy is. And the decisions for the projects that impact us as Indigenous people are made at the board level. They make the decision where the investments are going to go and the projects that are going to be put forward. So there's no almost no Indigenous involvement at that level. So it's not surprising that these projects show up in our territories and don't have a lot of Indigenous input in their planning or execution. Hmm. 
So this would be a timely place then, or in our dialogue, about getting a message out to all the people listening and to all the board of directors and CEOs and, and membership of, of these corporations to get First Nations people involved at their board level. Getting First Nations involved at the board level, Indigenous people at that point, provides a couple things. It provides insight into what the communities want and need in their territories. And are the projects actually compatible with the interests of First Nations? Second, from a completely corporate self-interest, it mitigates a lot of risk because you will know that if there's a problem with a plan or a project, you'll know about it well before it gets to the, gets to the point where it's being implemented. And then money's on the table. And at that point, possible court challenges. Well, that's, that's a good segue to these points because you're from British Columbia, that new territory, that new province called British Columbia, and there's three very important projects going on right now, and where First Nations are divided. I think of Site C. You have First Nations opposing Site C. You have First Nations supporting Site C. I think of uh, TMX, the pipeline. You have First Nations fighting against the TMX pipeline, and you got First Nations supporting TMX pipeline, looking at ownership, equity ownership, and as well as coastal gas link, you know, the, the, the fight between the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs and the Indian Act chiefs. So you have on both sides First Nations leadership, right? And uh, so how do you balance all of this dialogue discussion on ESG and, and uh, this going forward? And I just gave three examples of the, the conflicts between First Nations themselves as well. Yes, we do. We do have conflicts in First Nations among our own family and deciding what we're going to do. So the, each of those projects is unique and each of the situations is unique. The challenge, for example, on the pipeline on, uh, on uh, Coastal Gas Link, there's a problem there because of the governance system. The Indian Act is imposed on our traditional governance systems. So you have this incompatibility at times between the two systems. So it's not just about the pipeline. It's about the historical colonial approach that has been put upon our nations. That said, it is up to the individual nations, in that case, the larger, um, the Wet'suwet'en or um, whoever is involved, to come to some sort of agreement internally to mm -hmm. fix that because it's a family issue at that point. So the interesting thing about how these standards come into place and have not taken even that into consideration, companies would be well served if they had people on their board who understood that they were walking into a traditional colonial governance conflict. That would have saved them a lot of hassle at the beginning and a lot of money and a lot of heartache. So Indigenous people involved at all levels of those decision makings help. Second, Indigenous communities are working on that. There is a process with the Wet'suwet'en right now to figure out what they're going to do. And given time, they will figure it out. Mm -hmm. the, the requests are the requirement for uh, uh, unanimity amongst First Nations people when there's such diverse opinions and views. And we have over 60 plus different nations and tribes in Canada and overlapping territories and jurisdictions as well. And I always hear that from different levels of government and institutions and um, deputy ministers and you know and and I think hmm that's not really quite right when when we are asked that um, at the major projects coalition and even in my own nation we'll hear that from proponents going can't you people all agree like what's wrong with you my response is like oh like the federal government and the provinces like they all agree on every policy that comes down <laughs> from on high it's like no this this is what it means to be human this is what it means to be part of this country disagreements are fundamental to human nature and how you work it out that's what makes things successful is the outlying voice included are all the voices at the table considered that's what is important 
So this question about why can't all you Indians get your act together is like, that's ridiculous. That never happens anywhere. Tell me a time in your family, just your own family, everyone's agreed with something. No, it doesn't happen. So disagreement is normal. And what will happen is we will work it out just like the provinces and the federal government do, just like companies. If you look at boards of directors, they're not all in agreement often either. It takes time to work these things out. And better decisions are made when dissenting voices are heard. Because there's a reason why people have dissenting voices. They have valid concerns. And if they're not being addressed, that will harm everyone. Now, what are some examples uh, of ESG that have included First Nations and have worked well for everyone involved? Like, Are there any best practices any in any companies, public sector or private sector, like of going on where we're fully involved? Yes, there are a number of them. Anywhere where Indigenous people have been involved in an equity stake in projects is exactly what I'd highlight as an example. And there are plenty of them across the country right now. In Alberta, there's the Alberta Power Line, which is now owned by APCO and seven First Nations or First Nations anime T community. There's examples in Ontario, north of the lakes, where the uh, east-west tie-in is a transmission line owned by a number of First Nations in partnership with that company. In Six Nations, there's uh, Grand Renewables, which is a solar wind power combination power system that is owned partly by Samsung and partly by the First Nation. So there's lots of examples. And if you go to Moody's Investor Services, they put out a report about two years ago that listed dozens of these examples across the country where Indigenous people as owners, co-owners of these systems and these projects, derive revenue from them, have direct say in the environmental governance and uh, impacts that happen to their people through the projects. And that's where Indigenous involvement is fully at the table. Hmm. No, that's a strong statement because it's something that we've always been saying at the Assembly of First Nations that if you're going to talk about self-government or self-determination, definitely have to start talking about economic self-sufficiency and how our people are involved and as well uh, uh, benefiting from the land and resource development in our ancestral territories. So we got to keep pushing that going forward, no question. Another thing to talk about, Mark, as well, like you've talked about uh, uh, there's a push now to to move from our dependency on fossil fuels to, to clean, uh, green energy. And I think of Henby Inlet, where they have a, a wind farm. I think of the Souk First Nation in BC, where it's all solar. I think of uh, Gull Bay First Nations, northern Ontario, where their uh, uh, microgrids are in place, where they're, they're not burning 300,000 liters of diesel. So there's things happening in First Nations territories, you know, on the clean, green energy. Uh, because I'm going to make a statement. I want your thoughts on this one. Um, because a lot of our elders have said, yes, COVID-19, and we're feeling the big impacts of COVID-19 and the pandemic, but the impacts of COVID-19 are going to be small in comparison to something that's hitting not only Canada, but the world, and that's climate change. What are your thoughts on that statement? I think climate change frames exactly what went wrong with our economic systems globally when we moved off traditional knowledge. Traditional knowledge that our elders have taught us continually is that we have to live in harmony with our non-human relations. And that includes the environment. That includes not just the animals, but uh, the air. And what we've done is we've gotten off of that and profit has come above all. There is a chance now to reset that thinking. And it's only going to happen if we have a seat at the table to bring that knowledge back into the systems, uh, the economic systems, the power systems, how we live our lives. We have as a global society, live beyond our means. 
we've lived beyond the means financially because you see the debt problems that are happening worldwide but environmentally and in some cases socially so this is a chance to reset our entire thinking about what is knowledge and how how we bring that forward we as indigenous people have a huge part in this and the question now is how will we be involved so when your elders do say these things that these things uh climate change will be the greatest threat it is it is so i have hope that things that have been going on in canada in terms of undrip engaging indigenous people at all levels in companies is going to have a good effect if we can get that knowledge back into the systems that's a good point because now more and more companies are using that 3p model for business planning again planet people profit recently mark you were giving testimony at a, a parliamentary hearing and a parliamentary working committee related to bill c15 and bill c15 is the united nations declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples act why do you think bill c15 is important and how does that tie in with what we just talked about undrip is an indigenous act essentially it's written by indigenous people for indigenous people and it gives us a seat at the table in each of our host states so in that case canada for us as indigenous people here what's important is that it clarifies the relationship much more as an equal to equal it's true nation to nation so undrip itself has within it clauses that provide for things like funding our own sources of government, promoting our own language, deriving benefits and revenues from our traditional territories. Those sorts of things will give us as Indigenous people a much better footing in benefiting from this land, the systems that govern it, and most importantly, the revenue that all of Canada depends on. We don't have that at the moment. We have allocations from a federal government who will decide what's best for us. UNDRIP is true self-determination, and that's why it's important. Even within the UN Declaration Bill, um, Bill C-15, and I get to do my presentation in a week or so down the road, uh, why our, our chiefs of Canada have said uh, there was a former bill called Bill C-262, the Romeo Saganash Private Members Bill, uh, NDP Member of Parliament. Um, that, that failed, that, that died at the Senate. The chiefs of Canada said, get a bill that's as strong as and or better than C, Bill C-262, and that's what Bill C-15 is. And uh, a lot of people, again, we are, are supporting C-15. A lot of First Nation chiefs aren't supporting Bill C-15. But we can say, as AFN, we've done our job. We have a bill in place, a government bill, a liberal government bill that's stronger than Bill C-262. And there are certain elements of that bill um, that are quite uh, beneficial, for example, the National Action Plan within three years. Um, some will say it might be a little long, but it's in there. The law and policy review to get all laws of Canada in line with the UN Declaration, and 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 including uh, um, references to doctrines of superiority, which of course means the doctrine of terra nullius and the doctrine of uh, uh, discovery, are as being illegal racist doctrines. So there's a lot within there that people need to get their head around and understand. And again, back to um, why this bill is so important when it comes to investors understanding and environment and social and governance and, and how you make informed decisions is very important. And so I just wanted to acknowledge the, the work you've done at that level. Now, with all that dialogue, why do you think that Bill C-15 is important to 
not only First Nations people and Métis people, Inuit people, but all Canadians. Why is Bill C-15 important to Canada as a whole? UNDRIP, the UNDRIP Act, is important to all Canadians is that it provides certainty for decision-making across the country. It will provide Indigenous people, yes, a voice that we've not had at a level we've not had before. But more importantly for the country, it allows Canadians to know that investments in the economy will not be disrupted if they're done in accordance with UNDRIP. It knows that there will be... Um, I guess, financial security for those investors who are making uh, contributions that we need to build our economy, especially post-COVID. There's going to need a great need for money to come in and rebuild infrastructure, rebuild jobs, rebuild the economy. And those decisions are best made with Indigenous people at the table as equals, as is described in UNDRIP. So for the overall safety of Canadians' economy, economics, for the economy to be rebuilt, for capital to come into the country, UNDRIP provides the certainty that everyone is looking for, not just Indigenous people, but everyone, all Canadians. That's a strong statement. The UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People is a roadmap for reconciliation, and in this case, in this discussion, will be economic reconciliation, economic certainty. So, and British Columbia is one of the provinces, the first province, provincial government in Canada, to pass a bill uh, regarding the implementation of uh, the UN Declaration. What are your thoughts on that? I was very proud to be a resident of British Columbia when BC passed that act. It is a long road, though, and I think you mentioned in your comments too, is that in in making the federal bill stronger, uh, there is a there is a part of the BC bill that says that they will harmonize existing Canadian laws with the principles of UNDRIP. That will take time. That is courageous, and BC is moving on that path. And I'm very glad to see that you and and the chiefs nationally have pushed to include that in the Canadian Act. UNDRIP by itself will not change things overnight. Once the act is passed, very little will happen unless there's an implementation plan to proceed on harmonizing those laws, to correct what has been done uh, to our people through the Indian Act and other acts over time. Mm-hmm. It will benefit all Canada, but it'll take time, and it depends on the will of implementation. It's a good point. It's like we've said, the, the UN Declaration, Bill C-15, the act, is like another arrow in our quiver. It's just another tool we can utilize to, to bring about reconciliation, to bring about justice and, and recognition about the First Nations rights, title and jurisdiction uh, for our people. And, uh, and the point again about uh, bringing economic certainty right across this great land. So it's an important piece of work. Uh, the other thing that we, we talked about earlier on, and this, there's a, a growing talk about the 3P as well. Uh, policy in terms of a business planning model. And, um, and it does tie in with ESG. And that, that, of course, is, you know, most companies now always used to always think about profit, 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 profit. But now there's a growing trend about having a business model and plan that focuses on the planet, people, and, of course, then profit. What are your thoughts on that? It's great that the planet and people now will be coming forward as important. Let's ask this question, though. Who's making the decisions about what's good for the people and what's good for the planet? In the past, we as Indigenous people and the knowledge that we carry, traditional knowledge of how this land operates and how the nature cycles happen and what's good for our non-human relations has not been included in business decisions. I will be very pleased if that knowledge comes forward as included in this 3P model. Time will tell, though. I think the question we have to ask as Indigenous people is whose values will be put in place in that model? Will we be part of that discussion? 
that's important. Mm-hmm. That's a good point, and that's one of the things we keep espousing as well, that when First Nations people are involved, you always find the balance between the environment and the economy, always. Exactly. And that's a strong message going forward. Mark, you know, in Canada right now, we have COVID-19. Vaccines are coming. You know, we're, we're, there's a federal budget coming on April 19, and we know there's going to be a 380 plus billion dollar deficit in Canada. And with all these things coming at at you and us as First Nations people in Canada as a country, what gives you hope? What brings you hope and and gives you hope? What helps you sleep at night? What gives me hope about this country is that when you look at all the problems we've had and compare that to the problems the world has, we're okay. We've got rule of law in this country. We have dialogues where people talk we have, and as difficult as it is for some First Nations who have boil water advisories and the challenges right now of murdered missing women and people who have lost family, there is in this country a process to engage. And that gives me hope. I do not wish to be uh, looked down on other nations or other indigenous people, but worldwide, it's pretty ugly in some places. And we do have in this country a way to talk these things out civilly and not always smoothly, but we do have that process. That gives me hope. The second thing that gives me hope right now is that there is a growing trend, exactly as you just said, this people, planet, before profit movement. There's a sense right now that Indigenous values actually are important, and we need that for the long-term safety and survival of our planet. Like, there is a shift happening. And I think for Indigenous people, we have had a large part in that shift. Our elders' persistence to say, no, no, we can't go ahead willy-nilly on this profit above all. Like, there are things that are important. Our non-human relations, our environment, and the big thing through COVID is our social connections to each other. So that gives me hope. Mark Podlasley, thanks so much for coming on our Akamema podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And I want to thank all the people for listening to the Akamema podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Give us a rating and tell your friends about us on social media. And as always, we want to give a big shout out to the Red Dog Singers of the Treaty 4 Territory in Southern Saskatchewan for providing our theme music. Until next time, I'm Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. <laughs>